0: Now, I definitely have a word today. I'm excited to preach this. Um, we're going to look at, we're in a series right now, 2 Corinthians. And um, we've only done a couple, two or three messages so far. So we're kind of in the beginning. And we're just going to look at a few verses today. Uh, we're going to actually look at 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23, through chapter 2 the first 4 verses i think it's 7 7 verses altogether maybe 6 yeah 6 verses altogether so i'm going to read the verses through and then we'll we'll talk through it together yeah jesus help me to preach the word this morning i pray that you would manifest your power in our midst that you would change our lives through the preaching of the Word. Amen. So verse 23 in the first chapter of Second Corinthians says this, "But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth, not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy. For you stand firm in your faith. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? Verse 3. And I wrote as I did. Speaking of another letter that he wrote. And I wrote as I did so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Now, this is all about Paul's, Paul wrote 2 Corinthians. Paul was a writer of much of the New Testament he was, some say, the greatest Christian who ever lived. He founded the Corinthian church. He was a traveling missionary. He was an elder, but he was also uh, an apostle and a traveling missionary. And this is all about his incredible love for God's people. Notice how many words, just in these few verses, that Paul uses to communicate the pain He's talking about not physical pain, but emotional grief. Notice how many words, just in these few verses, he talks about the painful visit. You know, I don't want to cause you pain, pain, to suffer pain, affliction, anguish, tears. uh, Not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love. I mean, there's so much packed into this of Paul's grief for the church. In one verse he says his heart constantly burned, For the church. He had that, what Jesus was described as having a zeal for the house of God, a zeal for the church. And I want to ask this question up front Have you ever been distraught over the spiritual or physical or emotional condition of someone you love? And haven't you noticed that the more you love a person, the more potential grief you can have over their condition. Well, Paul was feeling profound grief and anguish over the Corinthian church because of their concerning spiritual condition. And I want to take a few minutes just to kind of rewind and remind us of Paul's relationship with the Corinthian church. You know, Paul established the Corinthian church. You can read about that in Acts chapter 18. Um, I'm not going to read the whole chapter, but it's just kind of the whole chapter is really about that. Uh, One, God moved. It was a bit of a revival. Like, I'll read just a few verses. It says, many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. And he stayed there a year and six months teaching the word of god to them. So Paul was the I guess you could kind of call him a spiritual father of the Corinthian church. They were like his babes. You know, they were they were his children, his spiritual children. He really cared for them and poured into them. He established the Corinthian church and he calls himself a father. He says, "You have a lot of teachers, but you don't have many fathers." And he was like a father amongst them, uh, gentle and caring for them. And then, you know, we're, this is, of course, what we're looking at is Second Corinthians, but what is this whole letter, and I've taught on this many times, but this whole letter of 1 Corinthians, and I'm just going to take a quick scan through because it, it'll help you to, it'll give you some context for 2 Corinthians and even these first few verses that we're looking at, that Paul wrote 1 Corinthians um, and it was a strong letter, okay? He was not exactly super happy about his spiritual children, and that comes through. He talks about, I'm just going to scan through, but like chapter three, he says things like this. You guys, you know, I'd like to address you as spiritual, but I can't. You're people of the flesh. You're, you're kind of acting like infants in Christ, you weren't ready for the deeper things of God. You're still in the flesh. You guys have jealousy and strife. Uh, you're behaving in a merely human way. I mean, these are strong words coming from the apostle and really the founder of, of the church. Chapter four is where he talks about though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And I urge you then, be imitators of me. He was tender, but he was also strong with them. I mean, he calls them a few verses later, some of you are arrogant. He doesn't mince words at all. Chapter five, it hits the fan right here. I mean, he, he just gets into it and he says, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. And of a kind that is not even tolerated among the pagans? For a man has his father's wife? And on top of it, you are arrogant about it. In other words, they were sexually immoral, but they were like, "Eh, whatever, what's the big deal? So he's dealing with them in 1 Corinthians 5 about that. But it gets, it continues to go on. Chapter six, he's dealing with them because over trivial things, they're bringing each other to court and so Christians are like bickering over stupid things and they're, they're dragging it into the public courts for every, he's like, this is terrible witness of the gospel. He talks about immorality again, sexual immorality. It's clear that they had a problem with immorality. And Cor- Corinth was kind of a crazy pagan, very secular, you know, we could call it a progressive city where sexual immorality was... Uh, Just, it was a thing in in that city. So when the church was established, this was a big deal for the Christians to live differently in terms of sexual ethics. Marriages were apparently falling apart because he gives a lot, spends like a whole chapter, chapter seven, instructing about marriages. Divorce was happening. Uh, They were, he gets into the way that they were, kind of mistreating each other by uh, eating meat sacrificed to idols and not being concerned and being sensitive with each other in that sense. He gets into, I mean, chapter 10, he just full-on... I think by this time, they know he's, he's dealing with them. And he just warns them straight up how in the Old Testament, we have these examples written down for us that you know, God judged the sexual immoral. God judged the, the grumbler and the complainer. God judged those who tested the Lord. God judged idolaters. And he gives these specific examples. And then he brings it straight right to them and say, listen, these things were written down for us upon whom the ends of the earth have come, that we might not do what they did. You know, if you stand firm, take heed, lest you fall. And he's warning them, again, like a father. But it's a strong book. And then it gets even more intense in chapter 11. I mean, we always think of this as like, oh, the the nice uh, chapter about the Lord's Supper and about communion. And it's, you know, one of the most quoted portions of scripture in the whole bible you know it's used often at the at the lord's table but really the context is atrocious that they were getting together for the lord's supper and you know what was happening? There were divisions amongst them. They were like, it wasn't like what we do with the little tiny wafers and the whole, no, this was a meal. Like they were bringing food, people brought food and it was like a huge potluck and there was celebration and there was joy. And and But what was happening was like people were bringing food and they were kind of hoarding it for themselves and eating. And then there were people that were in their midst who were hungry and they weren't even sharing their food. But this was what this was the Lord's supper, and Paul was like, "What is going on?" I mean, he says it in chapter eleven, in the following instruction. I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. He's talking about the Lord's supper. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions amongst you. You know, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry. Another gets drunk. This was the state of the church. They were having communion. They were celebrating the Lord's Supper. And some were actually getting drunk at the communion table. It was crazy. So this was a rough letter. I could keep going. Spiritual gifts, they were a mess. They were practicing the spiritual gifts, but without love. Uh, some had even gone so far as to deny the resurrection of the dead, kind of the centerpiece of the whole Christian faith. They had like, gotten away from that. And Paul gets into it in 2 Corinthians a little bit more. False teachers had arisen. These, Paul calls them super apostles. You know, these charismatic, they could have been maybe Uh, powerful leaders that came down from Jerusalem that kind of tried to, you know, insert uh, their version of Christianity upon the people. And Paul said, you guys are totally deceived. And so, you know, we kind of make jokes about the Corinthian church. Well, you know, Christians are Christians, you know, Christians are imperfect. I mean, look at the Corinthians. Like Paul called them carnal. Like we kind of talk in a, in sort of a glib or shallow way about that. But when you really read 1 Corinthians, Paul is bearing down on them. He's saying, "This is, you guys need to get it right. You are not in a good place. And again, it comes through as we come into 2 Corinthians, his pain and his grief as a father over their spiritual condition. You guys tracking with me? Anyone? One person at least? I heard somebody. Lynn, thank you for tracking. I appreciate it. I know you guys are just quiet, taking it in. It's heavy. So getting into these verses, he says this, I call God to witness against me. Now, this is strong language that he uses. I mean, I... It's like saying, I swear to God. I know, you shouldn't really say that, but he's saying, I call God himself to, if I'm lying, I call God himself to come and expose me as a liar. It's kind of the spirit of what he's saying here. And you'll see throughout the book that there were certain leaders, probably these super apostles, uh, who were undermining Paul's apostleship. Because this is what happens. You know, when a spiritual father or a prophet begins to speak truth to, to God's people and God's people don't want to hear it, well, you got to do something. You got to either kill the prophet or discredit him in some way. And so these super apostles who were probably very eloquent and very educated and in very sophisticated ways were able to dupe the people into thinking that Paul was not a credible apostle. So Paul, throughout 2 Corinthians, goes to great lengths to validate, it's like sad almost, but to validate his ministry to them. He desperately wants to keep his influence with them. And he says, you know, but I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Now, what is he talking about? To spare you. Paul's saying that The reason he didn't visit them was essentially because he wanted to give them a little bit more time to get their junk right, okay? You know, because a visit at this time would have been, it would have been unpleasant, if he visited and they were still sinning in all these different ways, if Paul showed up at the communion time and the Lord's Supper, and people were getting drunk and feasting on food and other people were hungry, I think Paul probably would have started flipping over tables and paul was like i just i don't want I don't want to do that." It brought to mind uh i don't know if this happened in your school, but I remember in several of my schools we had food fights, and boy, they were fun, you know like Somebody would yell out, food, fight, you know, and I, I mean, this actually happens, not just in the movies, like, it actually happened in the 80s, you know, and the kids would just throw food everywhere at each other, I mean, everybody, like, 200 kids, and, like, the monitors and different cafeteria workers would get stuff thrown at them, stuff would be thrown at the clock, thrown at the wall, thrown at the, and it was, like, so fun and everything until the principal gathered the entire school and just sat us down and schooled us on how wrong that was. I mean, that's kind of what came to mind. This is what a visit from Paul probably would have been. Would have been like, come bearing, wouldn't have been Paul coming bearing gifts and hey, high fives and everything's great and so glad to see everybody. Paul would have been visibly upset over the sin in God's church. And so he was like, I... I wanted to spare you that. I wanted to give you a little bit more time. My hope was, I was just going to pray and hope that you just kind of pull things together so I could come and bring a more joyful visit. And he says this, not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in the faith. Lording it over versus working for your joy. What does that mean? Uh, Paul didn't own the Corinthian church. He was not the CEO of the Corinthian church. He was not, he did, wasn't the master. He wasn't the boss. You know, he wasn't the, uh, you know, he, did, he didn't rule them. He was, like as I said before, more of a father amongst them, laboring for their joy. So he's just making them know that. Look, I'm not trying to lord over anything. I'm not trying to be your boss or ruler or anything. But I'm working for your joy. I have your best interest in mind. I want what God wants in your life. And that was Paul's heart. I mean, he went so far to prove this to the Corinthians that he didn't even receive a penny from them of compensation, even though he had the right to. And he kind of talks about that in his letters. He made tents. He just worked with his own hands because he just wanted to prove to them that his love was pure. There was nothing that he was gaining from, from them at all. He just wanted their best in all things. And then he says this, for I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. Now the translation of this is a little uh, disputable. Um, um, Different theologians have different ideas. So either Paul was saying that he didn't want to make another painful visit like the last visit that we actually have no record of because all we know is that he planted the church and then he wrote 1 Corinthians, and then now he's writing 2 Corinthians, about a year in between 1 and Second Corinthians. So I don't know, what is this painful visit that he's talking about? It's somehow with the Greek, you know, some say that it, it actually doesn't mean what it seems to mean in some of the translations, that maybe he didn't. He could have been saying, I don't want to make a visit that is painful. He could have been saying that. So there's debate about the translation of that. But regardless of which, the point is that Paul didn't want to come bearing the rod of correction. He wanted to come and bring joy. So it's possible. I mean, I think 1 Corinthians is a very strong letter. Um, That's probably enough. But it's possible that Paul, uh, you know, visited them quickly I think he was in Ephesus uh, for a few years and he could have came down and just like went off on that he just could have been so upset maybe it was like a one day short visit four hours and he blew in and blew out and it was like not it was not joyful for anyone Um, that's possible but again it doesn't really matter I think what matters most is that we see Paul's heart in all this he says for if I cause you pain who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained. So here he explains why he didn't come to visit. He would have had to bring that painful correction. And if they felt pain from Paul, then Paul was saying, uh, Paul was going to feel that. I mean, it kind of reminds me of the old saying of, of, of fathers. I never said this to my kids, but You know, this spanking is going to hurt you, hurt me more than it's going to hurt you. I mean, no kid believes that, actually. Um, (laughs) But I think there was some truth uh, to this with with Paul. Like, he didn't want to come and just come down on them and have a whole... I mean, I've felt that through the years, even with the very few times we've had to administer church discipline for different people in the community who are really causing trouble or doing things. Man, I don't... I hate it. I mean, I'm like upset for weeks over it. Praying, fasting. I do not enjoy uh, really coming down on somebody. And be like, you got This is you're hurting people in our community by your behavior, and just you know having to having to do that and sit with the elders. And I dread that, and I think fathers, good fathers, don't enjoy administering discipline. Uh, Hebrews says, you know, no discipline is pleasant at the time but it's painful. And I think it is painful for both dad and child uh, to deal with a child's issues or sins. So Paul really wanted them to, uh, you know, have some time to kind of deal with their sins so that his visit could be more joyful. So verse three says, and I wrote as I did. What is he referring to here in that sentence? It's either the letter to the church we call 1 Corinthians, or it's a long-lost letter that came in between 1 and 2 Corinthians. And many theologians uh, really believe this strongly. There were actually four letters, and we just have two of them. And it's quite possible, uh, and it's probable. Again, it doesn't really matter. I think the point is that the letter, whether 1 Corinthians or another letter— uh, was a painful one. Certainly, First Corinthians, I think, would have inflicted enough pain so it, that could stand on its own. But if there was a second letter or another letter in between first and second Corinthians, it was probably even stronger than First Corinthians, that maybe some time went on. Maybe several months went on, maybe half a year, or whatever went on. And Paul was getting, Paul had communication with, you can read this in the last chapter of Second Corinthians and First Corinthians. He had some connection with, uh, you know, Aquila and Priscilla and with some of the church leaders. And he, you know, he kind of got reports. They weren't tattletaling, but he just, you know, wanted to know what's going on. You know, how are they doing? And so he would get these reports from some of the leaders about the spiritual goodness. So maybe he had written 1 Corinthians, gave them time, and the report came and said, "Ah, nothing's changing. They're still like, nobody has repented. Like this this individual is still uh, sleeping with uh, his dad's wife. Uh, There's still sexual immorality. There's still drunkenness happening at the Lord's... And Paul might have just been, you know, like just at a point. Like what do I do? Wits end over his spiritual children. Well, he writes this, and I wrote as I did so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who you should who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. So again, Paul, so in love with the church that their grief was his grief. And their joy was his joy. It reminds me of uh, Romans 12, verse 15, that says, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Now, verse four says this, for I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with tears, many tears, not to cause you pain but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Now here we have a beautiful picture of abundant love, God's abundant love sort of manifested through a minister for God's people. And this grief, I think this is part of what Paul was saying, this grief is a mark that what Paul was feeling was nothing less than God's own heart. This is what God feels. And if we can just kind of pause here for a minute and just take this in, because this is really, if there's a few punchlines, but this is one of them. Like we need to understand that God's heart is consumed with grief for people, for humanity. I mean, it goes right back to Genesis chapter six, right? Whatever version of the Bible you have, but it says that God's, God was filled with sorrow over humanity because every inclination of their hearts was only evil continually. This was right before the flood, the great flood. God felt that. It wasn't that he was surprised by it. It wasn't that, oh, I didn't know that this was going to happen. I didn't know I was going to... But when it was being played out, God felt the grief. And there's an incredible manifestation of God's grief through individuals and prophets and ministers and intercessors through the ages. And you see this, like in Jeremiah, for example. You know, Jeremiah said, my eyes are spent with weeping my stomach churns, my bile is poured out to the ground. Why? Because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. Because infants and babies faint in the streets of the city. I think of Ezra who plucked out his beard in grief and anguish. I think about Nehemiah who just sat down and just wept over the condition of things. Just that the, the God's house, God's a uh, city had become shambles it broke him he wasn't like well you know that's what you get reap what you sow this is what happens when people don't pay attention to the laws of god yeah you know, there was nothing like cold in nehemiah he sat down and wept think about daniel who wept who prayed and fasted for weeks We could keep going. I think about David, Psalm 119. Streams of tears flow from mine eyes because people disregard the laws of God. David wasn't cold about it. People disobedient to the Lord God around him. David wasn't like, well, whatever. You know, people, God gave people free will. They can do whatever they want with it. Just kind of this cold theological explanation for the deadness or disobedience or rebellion of people around. No, David wept over that. Jeremiah wept. Isaiah wept. The the great men and women throughout the ages have wept and felt. The old saints called it the burden of the Lord. This weeping. David, of course, you know, wept a lot. But Paul was maybe one of the greatest... Examples of feeling the abundant love of God so strong that it caused him to weep. In Romans 9, he says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. And he was talking about his brothers, the Israelites, who he just wanted to, He wanted them so much to to know the truth of the gospel, but they were so blinded. And of course, nobody had more grief than the man of sorrows himself, Jesus, who was acquainted with much grief, the Bible says. Just give you one portion, Luke chapter 19 Because you did not know the time of your visitation. You did not recognize the very son of God sent from above that came to you. Jesus wept. When he saw the the multitudes, the Bible says what? He was moved with compassion. No coldness. No theological deadness. No, you know, explanation. Well, you know, this is just what happens. People do what they're going to do. You know, Jesus, how often I wanted to gather you. But you were unwilling. Jesus displayed the grief and anguish of the Father. And this is something that God wants us to experience. Both the joy, and we could talk about that on another day, the joy of when spiritual children are doing well, when God is moving in the church, when a church is healthy, when, 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 a, when a church is, uh, the, the glory of the Lord is resting upon a church. Uh, that's like the greatest joy. And we could, I could give you 10 verses about that of how Paul just had so much joy over the Philippian church, for example. But that we would also feel at times the grief over the condition of people. So this portrait of Paul brings us up against this question do we possess this kind of abundant love for the church that her condition intensely produces grief or joy? I mean, how much are we affected when the church is languishing spiritually? Again, I mean, back to membership. If if you're not even a member of a church, if you're not like kind of deep in it, you're not gonna care. If a church starts going through things and struggles and doesn't seem to be healthy, you just if you're a fringe, you just move to another church, go somewhere else. It's when you start to get to know people, you start to be invested in a church and it starts to be sick or parts of the body are sick spiritually. It breaks you. You weep over it. It bothers you. So I want to ask this question, like how can we cultivate this heart of abundant love that deeply feels for the church? How can we have this anguish of heart? What the old saints would call travailing at times. You're not just praying for people, but there's a spirit-born travail that happens within the inner heart. It's to be overwhelmed by God's emotions for God's people. Well, the simple answer might be, well, we need to pray, right? We need to pray more. And that's a good answer. We do need to pray more. But it's not just about prayer. Well, we say, well, you know, we're never going to feel real deep compassion for people unless we spend time with them. You have to be with people and kind of know people intimately. Like I said before, when you have a close relationship with someone and they're not doing well, spiritually or physically or emotionally, it bothers you more. I mean, we can read in the news about things happening on the other side of the planet or some stranger from some, even uh, lives 30 minutes from here or whatever, right in the city. It moves us, but we don't know who that person is, so it doesn't affect us as much. So we could say, yeah, we have to pray more. We have to actually know people and be intimate with people. But that is still not enough. There's one essential thing required, and it's this, that we would open our heart and our mind to God's perspective on the condition of people. Here's what I mean by that our tendency is to view people from a worldly perspective. I know that we do this. I do it. We all do it. There's not one of us in here that isn't guilty of this. We downplay or even write out just deny the seriousness of the condition that people are in around us. And we just don't want to think about it. Talk about people who are lost, the family members, their friends, their coworkers, their people on our sports teams, whatever. We just, we don't want to think, it's too intense to think about the spiritual condition that they're really in, that they're on a trajectory toward hell. We don't want to think about that. We don't want to think about the danger that people are in who are backslidden, who have known the ways of God, but have turned aside and have whatever, deconverted or gone their own way, or they don't need the church anymore, you know, whatever the case may be, entangle themselves back into sin, and we're like, oh, yeah, they're not, eh, they're not, the the way we kind of work, eh, they're not really in a great, great place right now. I mean, I, they believe in Jesus, but i don't know they they kind of not in the in the best place. we just soften it so much, you know because we we just we don't want we don't want to allow that to hit our emotions. we shield ourselves from it we don't want to feel pain that's that's human to to avoid pain right but I'm telling you there's something about abundant love god's love working in us that we we just we come to grips with it we need to see the the danger that people are really in and let that grip us because if we don't we won't even shed a tear if we think about lost people well they seem nice enough you know i mean they don't know jesus and yeah they're sleeping with their girlfriend and doing whatever and don't really have anything to do with Jesus and don't want Jesus, but we just the way we kind of think about them and talk about them, well, I don't know. I mean, they're nice people. Um, We don't want to imagine them as God imagines them. God sees the lost person as spiritually dead. Jesus put it so strong that he said, the wrath of God abides on them. That they are in such a condition of danger that they're on this like thin ice. I mean, what separates them from right now and eternity? Like nothing. They could die today. They could die of a heart attack. They could die of a car accident. And where would they be? Lost. Absolutely lost forever. And this is why Jesus is weeping. Jesus isn't weeping just for, um, oh, you know, you could have known the way of peace. You know, you could have enjoyed my fellowship. I wanted to bring you close to me, under my wing. But Jesus also wept because he knew the end result of the trajectory that they were on would be judgment and ultimate destruction. How can you not be moved by that, right? And Paul put it this way. Knowing the terror of the Lord. Knowing the future coming judgment. Knowing that the wrath of God is a real thing. And knowing that people are lost. They're not under the covering of Christ. They're not saved. They're just out there on their own. Doing their own thing. Sheep without a shepherd. No clothing of the righteousness of God. lost. Paul said, knowing that, we persuade people. You know, we are compelled to pray and to fast and to labor and to build the church to somehow bring people to their senses and to bring them home. And I could give you many verses about and I don't think I need to because most of you are pretty well versed in at least the New Testament. But there's a lot that the New Testament says and the Bible says about eternity. But can we just get real and sort of face it? You know, some say, what does it mean to be a Christian? It means to be born of the spirit, right? Jesus taught that. To be a Christian means you have had, you've gone from death to life. You've been resurrected by the spirit of the living God and God has set you on a rock, right? That, that, that you no longer live like you used to live. You're a new creation. You've experienced the new birth. That's what it means to be a Christian. So what percentage of New England falls into that category? Oh, a lot of people are, Christian. Everybody's a Christian. Everybody's some little bit of Christian. A little bit follows the teachings of Jesus or has Christian values or maybe has some kind of nominal affiliation with some kind of Christian church, sort of, or they're just good people and, you know, they're not against it. I'm talking about how many really are ready to stand before the living God and have that assurance on their life. I don't know. Only God knows. But I'm I'm telling you, it's a small percentage. And bring it into our worlds. Think about your uncles. Think about your cousins. Think about your mothers and fathers. Think about your grandparents. Think about people, friends, schoolmates. I, they may be nice. They may be good people. They may be contributing to society in good ways, in ways that are... But the, the ultimate question for us is like, but are they ready to stand before God? And if we really think about that, we'd have to say no. Even some might be, well, I, I think they are. Even that, God's been dealing with me. Like, don't settle for that if we're not sure, if they're not sure, then we shouldn't be settled. That should bother us. But my point is this, and I'm kind of bringing us there right now a little bit, but unless we think deeply about these things, and I'm not saying you have to think about this all day long, every day, but we have to have our moments of letting God really show us the seriousness of people's condition around us let god's grief hit your heart and i was thinking about this on the on the drive in this morning how the times in my life that i have felt the most grief the most weeping the most anguished in prayer in intercession just travailing for souls or travailing for people or family members or whatever have been by far absolutely the times when I have felt most close to God and most productive and most fruitful because I felt like my heart was aligning more with really who God was and there's something about, listen to me this be my last thought, but there's something about that grief. If you let it do the work inside of you, it is incredibly motivating. You know, sometimes we're like, I don't know, I'm just like a little cold. I just, I don't don't know. I'm just kind of, I don't know. I'm just not really that into whatever prayer, just Bible study, different things, serving the church. I mean, I'll do a little bit, whatever. But we're just, you know, we're kind of in that place where there's no, there's no passion, right? There's no fire, Where does the fire come from? The fire comes from the grief. When you are hit by that grief, you are moved to labor, to sacrifice, to pray, to get the junk out of your life, to refine your lifestyle, that it would reflect and be oriented around the kingdom of God. It's the grief that does that. You come out from from these experiences of grief and you're you're like Josiah, right? You're just ripping things apart in your own life. You're just determined with this kind of fiery spiritual zeal to fasten yourself to the will of God. Do you understand what I'm saying? Listen, Nobody's born with this stuff. Nobody's born with that kind of passion. I mean, some people are more passionate than other people, but that's not, this is different. I'm pleading with us as a church. Let's let God break our hearts for the lost around us and for people who are backslidden and prodigal. I want to be that kind of church. Amen? Yes. All let right, right. We're going to close in a song. I know this is heavy this morning. Thank you for listening. We're going to close in, I don't know if it's a joyful song or whatever. Okay, it's a joyful song. <laughs> All right, bring us back up, Julie. But let's stand together. Thank you for listening this morning and take these things to heart. Talk about them. Think about them. Write about them. But let's make sure this word is not just something we listen to and forget about. Let's let this one sink in and change our lives. Jesus, we invite you to put your grief in us and help us, Lord, to think about people the way you think about people. It's not in judgment or criticalness or anything like that, but just really just honestly and humbly and lovingly, compassionately, just coming to grips with, the danger that people are in. Um, Lord, fuel our prayers and our intercessions and our labor and our work to build the church. The church is the primary instrument you use to restore people. So Lord, may we have a zeal for your church and for your work born out of this anguish. Amen. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.